it was very challenging for me early on to pick a lane mm -hmm. uh, because with hemp it's like oh, okay there's fiber there's seed there's cannabinoids and I was really more interested in the fiber and the grain side until I got Lyme disease and I just that allowed me to just say nope I'm focusing on cannabinoids because it just saved my life. That's Annie Rouse and this is the Powerful Ladies Podcast. Hey guys, I'm Tara Duffy, a business coach and entrepreneur on a mission to help you live your most extraordinary life by showing you anything is possible. People who have mastered freedom and ease and success, who are living their best and most ridiculous lives and are making an impact are often people you've never heard of until now. I am such a huge fan of women who are just out there doing their thing to make the world a better place and secretly because they never brag about themselves, are total undercover badasses. Annie Rouse is one of those women. She's transforming the hemp industry in America. She is educating and correcting people on all the various products hemp produces and its benefits. She's running businesses and advocating and advising for other companies. And she's doing all of this with degrees in economics, an MBA, and a Fulbright scholarship on her CV. I'm excited for you to meet this badass. Annie, I'm excited to have you here today. Thank you. Likewise. Let's tell everybody right away um, your name, where you are in the world, and what you're up to. So my name is Annie Rouse. I'm currently in Michigan, northern Michigan. Um, and I have a, a couple different enterprises within the industrial hemp or agricultural hemp space, uh, moving into cannabis as well. Your website is one of the most informative, easy to read, super clear uh, websites for anyone who wants to learn anything about hemp and all the things that you can do with it. I was on there to this morning, nerding out about things and falling down the rabbit holes of all the posts you've done. And I think it's so, you know, shameful from an American history perspective, but just unfortunate what's happened with hemp in America. So for everyone listening, do you want to just kind of give a rundown of like the sad history of hemp and where it's gotten to today, where it's in a much better place? Yeah. So thank you so much for that compliment. I really appreciate it. I um, spent a lot of time on the website, not so much recently, but in the past, just trying to make it easy for people to understand hemp because people don't. Um, and a lot of that is because of the, because of American history for it and because of the stigma that was pressed against it in the thirties. Um, but really it has a deep history in the United States and has helped us really become the nation for which we are today. So, um, you know, initially before 1937, it, it was really used, um, has been used all throughout American history. I mean, Thomas Jefferson, George Washington, they used hemp um, consistently. Um, what, Sherwin Williams, a big, you know, massive paint provider in the U.S., they used to use hemp seed oil as a drying agent within their paints. Um, so it has, it has all of these rich industrial purposes. Uh, Henry Ford as well used the hemp seed oil to as a uh, within their combustion engines as like a diesel 
Um, and up, we, we used it in us Navy used it to build ropes and sails and parachute webbings. And it was also used as like a chicken feed, um, great Omega profile that we were then bioaccumulating into our bodies. And then in 1937, really starting in the early 1930s, it started developing the stigma because the United States and the international drug, uh, network decided that they wanted to start regulating cannabis within um, this drug framework that they were creating on an international scale, really for opioids and uh, primarily opioids, really. Mm -hmm. And they decided to lump cannabis within that. And so hemp, because it is the cannabis plant, ended up getting brushed into this international regulation and slowly got ripped out of all of our industrial processes um, and, you know, all the way from textiles to uh, biocomposites, these products can be used or the, or this agricultural material can be used within a, a plethora of products. And it was ripped out in the thirties. It was taxed. Uh, of course, you know, you don't want to tax, you don't want to suddenly then shift, you end up shifting to a different supply source because the tax increases the price on everything. And so people just stopped using it. Um, and then by the time 1970s hit, uh, it was completely mixed in as a narcotic drug, Schedule One, no medical value, high potential for abuse. You know, yeah, my T-shirt is a high potential for abuse. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it was lumped into as a Schedule One narcotic. And the 1970 Controlled Substances Act stayed in that category up until 2015, 2014, when the U.S. Farm Bill came out. And within that uh, Farm Bill language was a couple lines that basically removed anything at less than 0.3% Delta-9 THC, which is then one of the intoxicating cannabinoids found in cannabis. Um, so long as it was below that level, uh, we opened up a research program within states that adopted this language and developed programs and slowly, you know, from 2014 to 2018, research programs developed primarily actually around CBD as opposed mm -hmm. to the industrial side, um, which we can talk more about later. But uh, then in 2018, that language was uh, solidified even more so, and they actually completely removed it from the Controlled Substances Act. So it was no longer a uh, research program. It's now a completely commercialized program, still really controlled. Um, but within that time from really 20. 18 and really 2020 to 2022, we've seen the grain side and mm -hmm. the especially particularly the fiber side really start developing and uh, being utilized in all kinds of products from household materials, from building materials to sunglasses, uh, really yeah. amazing proteins that you can get. Um, so highly valuable crop, highly misunderstood crop, um, but has a, has a good place in the future, I think, for uh, for the world. Well, I just, it seems so asinine that we would remove a core crop from human functioning. Like it, hemp is in my head anyway, so much closer to like the capabilities of cotton or linen or something that just has like all these uses that the human consumption part is so far down the list of why like we need it. Yep. Um, I also can't imagine not having hemp hearts on my peanut oh, butter yeah. and banana toast sandwiches. So I don't, I put it on everything. Yeah. Literally everything I eat. I'm like hemp hearts and parts. Yeah. They're so good for us and kind of neutral. Like they just add, it's mm -hmm. like sneaking vegetables into tomato sauce for kids or something. Yeah. Um, I just, it just, you know, it's, it's so, it seems so asinine to me and just that it would 
like limit the um, progress of America by doing it. And I know that there's the controversial story around like William Randolph Hearst and the, mm-hmm. you know, printing and his newspaper industry and how he wanted to like, he was a big supporter of pushing it out. Um, but it, it just seems like how were people not losing their shit back then when they're like, we use this in everything. What do you mean we can't use it anymore? So it wasn't, I mean, it was, it was popular. It wasn't like, um, tremendously popular. You know, we were still using corn. We were still using soy at the time, really a decade before was the rise of the soy movement. Henry Ford was a huge advocate of soy. He and George Washington Carver used to call it the little miracle plant. Um, but Henry Ford really was like, a, a very large prohibitionist. So like with the hemp, kind of being in this weird category, he kind of stayed away from it. Um, but you know, when a lot of it, people look to William Randolph first as, as the, you know, to point the fingers, um, he really participated more in the role of a smear campaign, uh, through his newspapers, but it was really a much larger effort. I think personally from the pharmaceutical sector, um, because they just, it was a nuisance. They needed, um, they couldn't really control it. They couldn't patent it because, you know, the compound, the medicinal compounds in it couldn't be synthesized or, or isolated at the time. So they didn't know how to like rebuild them. And if you can't, you know, you can't patent mother nature, so they would have to create a new compound with it, which is really how, you know, all of modern pharmaceuticals of that whole industry is developed. And so they really seemed to have played a larger role. Mm -hmm. Um, but people found substitutes, you know, Mm -hmm. jute was a big substitute at that time. It's very similar to hemp in terms of the fiber properties. Um, it's really, hemp is like a combination between jute and soy mixed into one, you know, it's got Mm -hmm. the industrial side with the oils and the food properties, and it's got the fiber side like jute, Mm -hmm. um, or canaf. And there was a big economic shift at that time with, um, the jute trade and, and needing war reparations. And we had to, you know, the United Kingdom owed us a ton of money, the United States after World War One, And so they needed to do this reciprocal trade to, you know, bring, and they did that via jute. So it was mm-hmm. like, all right, we'll get rid of this hemp industry and these hemp fibers that we use. And instead we'll replace it with jute. And you see that with, you know, industries all across the board is as long as there's a substitute, they can make that shift. Uh, yeah. So like Sherwin-Williams was, they were one of the ones that came out against it of like, no, we use this. You can't, yeah. you can't make this illegal. And then, uh, you know, it came to light that, oh, actually, well, you can use flaxseed oil as a replacement. So just do that. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure they probably got some tax incentives and stuff like that to make the transition and voila, the, you know, <laughs> higher powers kick out a, a uh, you know, something that one of the oldest crops on earth that has developed with our, our bodies and that we've mm-hmm. evolved with. And, you know, boom, it's out of the picture. Yeah. Well, and I I think the other part that makes hemp so magical is that two to one ratio with the omega profile, Mm -hmm. right? It's two to one, right? Omega six to omega three. Omega two. It might be the other way around. I'm not blanking on that. Yeah. So it's perfect. I think it's three to six because you need more three than six. And that's kind of right now, soy is really high in omega six, which is Mm -hmm. why you know, the American population has these horrible inflammatory issues because we're mm-hmm. constantly stuffing ourselves with soy, whether we know it or not. Yeah. Um, and hemp, you know, the body really craves a two to one omega three to omega six ratio. Mm-hmm. And soy is more like a one to six, three to yeah. six ratio. So, um, yeah, it's super healthy for you. Mm-hmm. 
You know, I want to go back in time a little bit. Would eight-year-old you have imagined that you were the like empress of hemp at this point in your life? (laughs) Um, Probably not. (laughs) I think I was, you know, didn't, couldn't ever fathom what my life would be like at, you know, 30 plus years old, but um, you know, probably my, the 2009 me, um, which was like a 20 year old or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, Probably hoped for it, I suppose. But yeah, I, I wouldn't really call myself that. I just know a lot about it and <laughs> try to spread the good word about it, which is, um, you know, getting easier and easier. Yeah, I'm going to I'm going to nominate you for that title because it also is really <laughs> fun to say. Um, yeah. Well, thank you. <laughs> you're welcome. How did you end up being in hemp in this capacity? Um, I mean, I luck, um, luck and hard work both. Um, so obviously my da- my dad introduced it to me um, when I was eight years old and then I just got lucky to have written about it because my parents had kind of directed me to, mm-hmm. and that just sparked my curiosity. And of course my dad just driving, you know, helping me spark that those questions and wanting to understand it more, helped me help push me along. Um, but it, you know, everything was a little mix of luck and hard work. I mean, having to, taking the chance to go to graduate school, taking the chance to, you know, write up a, a Fulbright essay or, or um, mm-hmm. research proposal, actually going through with it and submitting it, you know, all of those things I obviously had to like work hard to get done. Um, but the timing on everything was perfect. Um, you know, I, had, I submitted the Fulbright proposal in 2013. At that time, there was already a lot of movement around him. Um, when I was in Canada doing the Fulbright, the farm bill passed. So that timing could not have been better. And, you know, mm-hmm. I had nothing to do with that, but, um, so it, um, you know, things, I like to think things are a, a mix of both. And did, when you were in school, were you studying agriculture? Were you studying, like where, what were you studying no, that led so- to the Fulbright scholarship? So in undergraduate, I studied economics, um, but then I took this environmental economics course and I just fell in love with the whole concept of, of what we were doing wrong, what we could be doing right and how we could monetize the right thing to do. Um, and what that meant, you know, for all, for the whole world really. Um, and so that sparked my interest one of my the professor of that course kind of led me down this path of studying environmental mm-hmm. policy, which um, put me into graduate school out in California, where I got a master's in international environmental policy and uh, did a dual degree in business administration. And one of my professors had done a Fulbright and he was he just did it as like a, a class project of a paper because mm-hmm. he really was trying to push people to do it because he had such a great experience. So I wrote up a, a proposal. Um, I think it was it was for Bill, I actually don't remember which it was for. I ended up shifting it later for the actual Fulbright. Um, but it, you know, that kind of led me in that direction. So I wasn't necessarily studying an agricultural environment, but it was more of like the environment across the board. So I was really into building at the time I had, I had done a a internship with the Monterey Bay Aquarium where I was studying lead, uh, certifications Mm -hmm. and helping them, you know, assess that path. Um, and then was doing some stuff with waste management. So I was kind of interested in like all walks of the environment. I actually wanted to saw myself being like a, you know, chief sustainability officer somewhere is, was yeah. my like, you know, 10 year, 20 year goal. Um, not there yet, but <laughs> not yet. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, and I just, I love the fact that uh, your resume is not who people expect to be the empress of hemp. Like <laughs> you're from Kentucky, right? You, you've studied economics. You have a Fulbright scholarship. Like all these things where they would be like, well, why, why are you hanging out in that industry, right? Like it's a bunch of hippies from California. And you're like, no, this is, this is why I'm here. You guys are yep. being idiots about it. Um, it just, it makes me so proud to like, I really like powerful ladies that are secretly way more powerful than you think they are. <laughs> and, and you're, you're just so like relaxed and casual and like, you know, just so well-spoken. And then you're like, oh yeah, and this is in my back pocket and this is, and what else do you want? Cause I have the full s- supply of tools <laughs> so that you guys are going to listen to me. Cause you're not listening to other people. Yeah. Well, um, sometimes I still don't listen, but <laughs> it's, it's hard to convince people sometimes. <laughs> yeah. You know, obviously being in, coming from a state of Kentucky and now you're in Michigan, you know, there's a very different perspective of what um, hemp and, and also cannabis in the Midwest versus on the coast. Mm-hmm. You know, what, how, how are you seeing things change? And how are you seeing it evolve from a both political and cultural perspective? Um, well, so Kentucky is uh, was very early to the hemp side. Um, Mitch McConnell, Senator McConnell was very, you know, was uh, played a huge role in that. The last thing he ever wanted to do, though, was legalize or is legalized cannabis. <laughs> and I think we can we can very much see that in in the Senate right now. Um so Kentucky, while they were first to market on that, they, they'll probably be the last to legalize or one of the last to legalize cannabis, which is uh, definitely a bummer because it is really the largest black market or was, um, you know, up until medical and rec started popping up everywhere. And, um, you know, Michigan, I'm, I'm here just on vacation, but um, the market here is very well developed for cannabis, but not for hemp. Um, there is some language that needs to be changed for, you know, really the production of the supplement side of, of hemp in the state of Michigan. Um, and the, really the fiber is more done in like the, you know, Kansas, uh, really like, uh, South Dakota and Idaho, Montana, no, not Idaho, sorry, Montana. And yeah, that whole area. Mm-hmm. Um, and Politically, it definitely, they're both bipartisan, um, but hemp obviously being much more so than than the cannabis side. Mm-hmm. And I think that we will see that shifting. I mean, there's, it's great. Cannabis as a whole is, is having higher and higher rankings and, you know, more people are wanting it to go through with more science is coming out about it. It's, it's funny, you know, there's always this call for more research and it's like, really, what about on that pesticide that you just shoved down our faces, you know, like, Hey, glyphosate, woo, 20 years later, there's all these, you know, cancers coming out about it, but you just, you just let that go to market, you know, 80% of our bodies now. Yay. (laughs) Like, wow, thanks. Um, so it's funny how, you know, the political environment has shaped up, but that's mostly because of lobbying, Mm -hmm. you know, if if there's lobbying dollars, they just shove it down those throats and cannabis, unfortunately has like as a whole, you know, hemp and, and cannabis and, uh, you know, has like, I think one, one hundredth of the lobbying dollars that the pharmaceutical yeah. ha- industry has yeah. and the oil and gas industry have. So 
it's hard. <laughs> yeah. Slowly but surely though, you know, there's more acceptance, more people are taking it. I mean, and you see that, um, I think we'll see that actually with a, a lot of the narcotics, you know, the drugs mm-hmm. that are on the narcotic scheduling act of just, um, all of that drug control was not the right way to go. And we're seeing these shifts slowly as, you know, more research comes out about psilocybin and MDMA mm-hmm. and things like that. So it's just going to take time, but as our generations age and the old guys move out, then, yeah. you know, ideally we'll all keep this same kind of spirit alive. I'm mm-hmm. sure the baby boomers said the same thing now. So yeah. hopefully we don't get lost. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, I, and I think that people didn't realize or still don't realize how by making them all of these drugs schedule one, that the research stopped. And mm-hmm. I just, there's such a difference between you know, researching something and using something, whether you think it's right or wrong to use it. And mm-hmm. it, we've just missed so much powerful information on all of these, you know, oh, especially yeah. the, the natural sourced mm-hmm. scheduled one products of like, right. if it's, we're doing all this research on, you know, for crying out loud, toads in the rainforest that can get you high. And we're learning all of this about how they can, these things can cure cancer and other things too, based on the chemical properties why did we stop doing research here? Like we have so many mm-hmm. big problems in the world to solve. And I think that's where chemistry can be great versus the chemistry that we're always talking shit about lately of like, oh, thank you for, again, the pharma- the pharmaceuticals that are now addictive or the, mm-hmm. um, you know, all the agricultural products that give us cancer. And, you know, we don't need any more plastics. Thank you. Right. So, yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, and I think that's what's interesting also about hemp is that it it literally crosses over into every hot button topic that exists today. Mm-hmm. Sustainability, environmentalism, natural health, uh, even racism, it crosses over into in its mm-hmm. its journey. And um, you know, do you just I would imagine that you would just have smart people beating down your door being like, we have to talk. Is that happening? And do we need to start a lobby for more of that to be happening? <laughs> always down for more. Um, you know, it's with the industry, everyone is so caught up in it right now. It's, it's, um, it's hard to keep up. The industry's changing and evolving at, at, you know, rates that are just insane. Um, there's a lot of market compression right now. And so there's, you know, shifting tides and mergers and acquisitions and bankruptcies and, you know, everything (laughs) to the moon and back. So it's, um, but yeah, I mean, uh, talking with people, expanding, you know, my intellect, helping to expand their intellect and subjects is always something that really, uh, I appreciate. And, you know, it's how we learn. It's how we grow as, as humans and how we change opinions and, you know, learn to evolve. Well, speaking of how we learn so many people, are just devouring documentaries right now about all those mm-hmm. topics and more. Um, and part of your inspiration came from that film, The Hempsters Plant the Seed. Do you mm-hmm. ever think about making, you know, films to be telling the story? Because I just, oh yeah, I had the pleasure. I got one in my back pocket. Yes. <laughs> well, um, I have friends at Mountain Film, and I got to go there in Telluride over Memorial Day weekend. Cool. Every film is about sustainability or social cause or they're just, they all fit into the, like the social economics space at a minimum. Mm -hmm. I think that'd be a great place to get your film shown. Let me know if we need some introductions, Uh, both with filmmakers or the people there, but like 
you know, I walked out of there want, wanting every person on the planet to watch all the movies I just saw. Because yeah. you can't not watch them and be like, shit, we're changing things. You just can't. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and they're so impactful in that sense. I mean, um, people people really can see the visuals of it. They can mm-hmm. understand it a little bit more. You know, like I think we had spoken earlier about the the film, The True Cost. Yes. You know, all about the textile industry. I watched that with a friend of mine who was like a fashion fashionista, did fashion design, you know, all this stuff. She watched that documentary with me and was like, oh my God. Yeah. Like I, I have to get out of this industry mm-hmm. or I have to change it. You know, it's like yeah. it 180 her entire entire, you know, feeling about what she was doing. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's how a lot of things can go in that documentary setting. It reaches people that maybe, you know, wouldn't understand it or, or, you know, want to see it otherwise or read about it. And yeah, I mean, I, I think they documentaries like that can have the impact of, of many. It's just mm-hmm. a fact of getting it to the masses is yeah. always the hard part. Yeah. Well, and when I was in undergrad, I was debating being a geography or like a anthropology major. And I took this class that was similar to one that you talked about called um, the uh, ecology of, or economics of ecology. Mm. And mostly we were talking about um, the true costs of anything we do in mm-hmm. touching the Amazon rainforest or other natural oh, yeah. tools. And it's like a whole class you just want to cry through because you're like, damn it, we do not know how to do math at all. And we do not know how to value anything. <laughs> like, who mm-hmm. is in charge? Um, yep. But there's such a crossover there. And and with so many things needing to be f- fixed and helped and implemented right now, I keep being like, what do I need to do? Do I need to go and get my law degree? Do I need to go and get a PhD in economics? Like, what do I need to do? Who? Where can mm-hmm. I channel this energy to be louder because um, there's all these people who are like, tell me what to do. And I'm like, I don't know. I'm like, call Annie, Um, call these people. Like, do you want to become a lobbyist? Might hate your life, but if you want to do it, great. (laughs) Yeah. Well, we definitely need more lobbyists on the good side. Um, That's a huge, something huge that we need. Um, unfortunately, you know, the people on the bad side usually are the ones with all the money that (laughs) hire the lobbyists. But, um, But the, you know, that, I mean, that's a huge aspect. And when I was doing my Fulbright, I studied life cycle assessment. And Mm -hmm. I think that is a, it's a field that's up and coming and is so important for our future because you see these companies out there and it's becoming more and more popular, but like, I think Adidas or, you know, some different brands, they've now got on their, on their label, like, oh, this saved 98% carbon or what, or, you know, whatever value is. And it's like, Oh, okay, well, great. That number looks cool. But like, mm-hmm. how did you account for that? What did yeah. you include? Did you include transportation? Did you include it all the way back to the raw ingredient? You know, the, yeah. all your raw materials, but like what was your scope of work? Mm-hmm. Because everything in that realm, the data can be skewed so easily yeah. just by, Oh, we're only going to include this tiny little like area. We're only going to include once it reaches our facility and the transportation to you, you know, it's like, well, that's not the environmental impact of that product. Um, But it's also hard. I mean, as a business, as a small business, especially Mm -hmm. we try and, you know, be are very, very um, considerate about our supply chain. We try and lower impact um, Mm -hmm. our transportation impact by sourcing locally. But even that it's like, okay, we can't get everything local. I, I have to get packaging from China. Like that is yeah. just 
you got to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, accounting for it all the way, every single product in it, you know, the packaging, mm-hmm. the screw, the, you know, whatever it is, you got to count for all those parts and really get the yeah. scope of it and then start building backwards. But getting all that data is like, I mean, it is painful. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, it's painful. It doesn't exist sometimes. And yeah. Mostly doesn't exist. It, I mean, there's it, softwares. Like when I was doing my work, I got a software and it had like basic kind of, mm-hmm. okay, this is the flow. And then you could, you could kind of tweak some of the numbers, but not yeah. really. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you can use that as a baseline, but you still like, you know, it, it's all about building the model and yeah, what are you including? Yeah. Well, and I, I worked in footwear and apparel for 20 years. And mm. it was the hardest, like, oh, like in operations and design, like across the spectrum, but the supply chain piece was crazy. And even if you did everything in quotes, right, mm-hmm. you still couldn't control what would happen. Like I've had an entire container of shoes fall into the ocean because of a storm. Oh. And you're like, well, how do we account for that? Where does that yeah. go? Oh, like, and that happens all the time. Right. I mean, like, who's going to fish that out of the deepest crevice yeah. we've ever found? <laughs> Yeah. What? Yeah. Out of the 5% that we've explored. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Like I, when we do expand ocean exploration, I'm, people are going to be like, what the fuck were humans doing? Be yeah. like, I, I just, you know, that if based on what we're seeing arrive on shore or mm-hmm. in the plastic islands out there, like oh, all yeah. the stuff that's not on the surface. Yeah. Yeah. My, uh, my brother-in-law studies, uh, oceanography, chemical oceanography actually. And so he's like all about the nitrogen cycles and, you know, the, he doesn't really look at the, um, at the plastics, but obviously just testing water. he goes to like the Arctic and is testing water samples and stuff. And it's like, Oh, every sample has a piece of plastic in it. Every sample, Mm -hmm. you know, and it's, it's not, people think it's like, Oh, they're, you know, it's a, something, you know, like a, this or like, like it's a full plastic. And it's like, you, you know, it's like not pick it up. Can't even see it. Like, yeah. you know, and then that shrimp is going to eat it and then it bioaccumulates in the shrimp and then we eat the shrimp and then, oh, hey, what do you know? We got a credit card size worth of plastic in our gut. No wonder we've got so many problems. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like, we're like, we're, we don't know how to detox that out yet. Yeah. 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 yeah the body's <laughs> smart, but uh, yeah. I don't know if it's that smart. Well, I did an ocean cleanup uh, locally and I thought, Oh, like I'll pick up some trash, fill up a bag, feel good about the day. Mm-hmm. And they're like, can you please sit in this 10 foot square and pick up all the micro pieces of styrofoam? And I was like, fuck. <laughs> it's like picking, like, they, um, I don't know if you're familiar, have been to Burning Man, but they like have people with tweezers picking up glitter because you are not, that's how deep they are and they'll oh, leave no wow. trace. And glitter is banned. You are not allowed to bring glitter or wear things that yeah. have glitter on them because it's a shit people show. Do. People do. So you can, someone yeah. has to go around and clean it up. And that's what I felt like. I'm like literally on my hands and knees for six hours picking up wow. pieces that don't even look like styrofoam because like, oh, it's mm-hmm. just like white crushed rock until you get there. You're yeah. like, no, it's not. You're like, oh. I bet you found a bunch of nurdles then. What are nurdles? You know what those are? So they're oh. like the little, um, it's the precursor to plastic. Oh. Um, so there are these little balls that are like, uh, yep. Like what you'd see in a plastic like a recycling. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, it, I mean, basically when they make plastic, they, you know, take all of the petroleum and the different inputs, plasticizers, colorants, and they, they put it, they extrude it into these like 
straw like mm-hmm. um, molds. And then they just cut them up into all these tiny little pieces. And then they box those up and then they put them onto barges and they ship them across the Pacific Ocean. And then they land in like Long Beach mainly. So if you ever do a beach cleanup, cleanup at Long Beach, you will find, I found like 60 of them in like a four by four space. I mean, it, it's littered oh. with nurdles. And then a mold manufacturer in the United States will receive those and they'll make, you know, like an iPhone case or yeah. a water bottle or it's like plastic you know, whatever beads it is to make everything else. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. They melt them down and then mold it into that. And you find those things. I mean, I'm on the Great Lakes right now. I'm on Lake Michigan. Mm-hmm. They're all over Lake Michigan, all over the shores of Lake Michigan. And they're just these tiny little like clear, almost translucent, sometimes white mm-hmm. little beads. And they are everywhere. I've never really seen them on the Atlantic coast, but they're all along the Pacific coast and they're all over the Great Lake shores, which is just Infuriate. terrifying. <laughs> yeah. Like, oh, <laughs> our most precious freshwater source. And we're just. How, how I'd like to have a conversation with someone who is smart enough to figure out how to make a magnet to pick all those things up because there's yeah. no way to do it one by one. Yeah. Yeah, that would be a really good idea. I have no idea how you'd make that, but I bet someone can figure it out. Wasn't there recently some bugs, worms that were like eating plastic? Yeah, well, so there are microorganisms. Yeah, I kind of feel like actually in the gyres, they found some bacteria or something like that that actually is like, it's some new bacteria that they found out there I think that's what it was that is actually eating plastics. Now, of course, it's like, is that going to be an invasive species then if you introduce it into an environment that where it shouldn't be? Because if if it's a new bacteria that eats that, what's going to eat the bacteria, you know, to make sure that there's not this like overgrowth of God knows what (laughs) new life, (laughs) alien form. Because that is always, you know, an externality that that mm-hmm. may occur. It's there's um, where I am right now. There's a um, an invasive species called Eurasian water milfoil, and it's a um, it's a water um, like I want to say herb, but it's a plant, mm-hmm. um, and it grows really tall. And it's just it's in the swimming area. It's just kind of gross. So we've always tried to figure out, oh, how do we eradicate this? Can we use um, a pesticide? Can we cover it up? Can we introduce these things called weevils, which are these little bugs mm-hmm. that eat it? And then it's like, oh, okay, yeah, we can introduce that. But then when that plant is gone, where, where are they going? What are they doing? Are they, yeah. do they die? Do they, because they don't have a food source or are we now like just introducing a bunch of these bugs into the great lakes Yeah, and you know, they're going to end up growing 10 times their size uh, who knows and then the duck um, again, population goes, goes up or the other population yeah, goes up yeah. and suddenly you're like oh man don't have plants right. and now you're covered in bird poop awesome yeah like, <laughs> you know you never know these things and again it goes back to the precautionary principle and the innocence mm-hmm. that we were talking about with them wanting so much research on cannabis and okay here yeah. it all is do something about it whereas yeah. like oh glyphosate now just introduce that no big deal um you know, everything's kind of got that externality to it, whether it's positive or negative and figuring it out. (laughs) I really don't believe that the majority of humans are malicious. Right. And so I like, I'm like, maybe 1% truly are evil and that's it. (laughs) But so that means that there's a large group of people 
who have done things that we now consider bad that like didn't mm-hmm. mean to. So I'm like, right. were they, was it a factor of like, they did what they didn't know they didn't know? Was it that they really weren't the best people to be making those decisions? Like what was going on where they were like, you know what? Release it. I think it'll look it, it'll be fine. And you're like, <laughs> wait, what? Like, yeah. I'm, I, I know from working in so many different corporate environments, like when you would see what would happen, there would always be half the group would be like, are you out of your mind? The other half would be like, it's fine. And like, that was always the dilemma. And we were not solving mm-hmm. world problems. And so I'm just wondering, like, who are all the people who were losing their shits that history has just forgotten over time because they didn't, they were the ones maybe causing problems to everyone else to be like, hey guys, um, did you see this report? And you're like, shh. Yeah. Go, go away. Go away. Yeah. Um, I mean, this deadline, <laughs> you know, I think a lot of it is driven by money, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you think about uh, all the whistleblowers in history, I don't know if you've seen the documentary Dope Sick, uh, but it's all about Purdue Pharma yep. and oh, just such a sad but eye-opening and inspiring documentary mm-hmm. about the opioid epidemic. But, you know, there was a whistleblower at Purdue Pharma and they that person kept coming to him and being like, this is not good. This is not good. There's all these reports of addiction. And they just kept shutting her down, shutting her down. And it's because they were making so much money yeah. and they just didn't care. You know, they... Yeah. They knew that they weren't going to get in trouble for it. They And they still haven't. The family still has not really gotten in trouble for it. Um, and so they just knew there weren't going to be consequences. Mm-hmm. And because of that, the, you know, they ended up firing the whistleblower. And then she ended up ratting him out entirely. Mm-hmm. But um, actually, I think she... Well, I'll let people find out in the documentary. But, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, that's a massive aspect of it. People just yeah. don't always listen because they want to make a lot of money. Yeah. Yeah, they're just Bad truth. They're just high on the sales reports and mm-hmm. and and I right. you know as an entrepreneur it's like there are days when there's just no more capacity to make another decision or think about anything else. So mm-hmm. I under I can I can understand how these things come up and you're like please come back tomorrow, right? Yeah. Like look at my to-do list. I don't have room to have that conversation right now. Like I can't there's moments that we can't actually handle more decision-making or mm-hmm. information coming in. So I can understand things being pushed off for a period of time, but like forever and for that long. And at what right. point do you not listen to your, the people whose beautiful brains you've hired to contribute? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, when I, I think, uh, Oh, go ahead. No, you go ahead. Oh, I think a, a big part of it, um, you know, we talked about making the money and, you know, having the decisions that the, a lot of these public trade, publicly traded companies, they, they have to do that. They have to make that decision because their job is to increase the shareholder, uh, value. And so it's literally it their means, fiduciary responsibility. Yeah. They have to do it. But if we embedded environmental or social, yeah. Uh, data points into that value of a company, it would change the course of Mm -hmm. how we value everything, you know? Okay. Yeah. You didn't, you, you know, lost 10 cents on each product um, when you could have gained it. But in that process, you offset, you know, X percent of plastic going into the ocean or, or this Mm -hmm. waste stream or the landfill, or, you know, you saved this amount of trees, which offsets X amount of carbon, you know, we, 
there are ways to quantify that stuff now. Mm-hmm. It's just a matter of doing it and yeah. having you know a leader to really push that forward and really wanting the investment banks to having them demand it. Mm-hmm. And I think that we'll be seeing that hopefully in the coming decade or so. I mean, there's um, a lot of movement happened with Microsoft and Amazon and um, you know some of those massive companies because a huge investment uh, firm called BlackRock, they are a huge wealth management company and they sent mm-hmm. out a letter earlier, I think it was last year, all about if you are not investing in, in environmental protection and savings, then we will retract our investment from your company. I mean, that is massive news. Yeah. So hopefully those companies aren't just greenwashing what they're doing yeah. and they're actually taking the steps to make it happen. Uh, and that's what we need. Yeah. It's like, we sent the letter, right? We're good. You're like, yeah, no, 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 yeah. no, 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 nice yeah. try. Um, yeah. Well, I, I don't remember um, if we talked about it when you were on the panel, but my favorite book this year has been Good Morning, Beautiful Business mm-hmm. by um, Judy Wicks. And um, she she's one of those badasses that not enough people know about because she started the co- fair trade coffee movement. She's part of that group wow. in the U.S., she started uh, paying, um, she start, had a restaurant business initially. She's actually one of the original co-founders of Urban Outfitters when it was oh. like a mostly vintage type store. Hmm. Um, so she's this crazy pioneer for social entrepreneurism. And cool. she, one of the big things in her that she's excited about right now is moving away from the traditional stock market and looking at local stock markets. And she's Hmm. like, I've made more money investing in this local kind of made up stock market in Philadelphia. I made more returns there than I did investing in the traditional path. And I think that she's a really big thing. Right. Um, And so they're popping up in different cities now because you're just investing in other entrepreneurs and it's, you know, same rules, same plans. And, you know, who do you trust? You know, I, I would trust you over Exxon any day, right? Yeah, right. For many yeah. reasons, not just to keep your word, but to do, do the right thing. Yeah. Um, and making your money back in those situations really is just, will they keep their word? Mm-hmm. Right? Because it's mm. um, same fiduciary plans, but they are based on the triple bottom line profit of mm-hmm. people... Uh, Profit, people, planet, or purpose, whatever mm-hmm. their purpose is, if it's not planet. Um, right. But it, I'm so interested in that right now because as a educated, um, business-oriented adult in America, I'm like, you have to be having a retirement plan. Like, you need one. And oh, yeah. I hate that it's handcuffed to this completely made-up system that runs so much of U.S. life, which is complete... Like it's monopoly money at the end of the day. Like yeah. it is not a free trade market at all. Like it's, it's so uh, controlled and manipulated and influenced. Mm-hmm. And this, the over time, it still shows it's the best place to put money if you want to make money. But mm-hmm. I'm like, there has to be a better way. Like there, this, yeah. I don't, I don't, <laughs> I'm trying to avoid all the other yuck in my life. And so that's the part where I'm like, how do we avoid that yuck completely? Yeah. But I love love that idea. Mm -hmm. I mean, investing in small, you know what it is, you you can trust in it, you 
Yeah, it's local to you. You can see it in action. Yeah. That's great. You can jump in you and help somebody if they need it, right? Right. Yeah. So, um, but I, hmm. I'll send you a copy of her book because it's just, it's so great. Plus, she's just a badass. Like, was in Alaska on a, um, what was those trips called? They had like the instead of going into the military civil service type trip that they used to do. Oh yeah. Okay. So just who she just is. I'm like, oh, when I grow up, I hope I'm like you. <laughs> um, but it, it is so interesting because there are, um, and she's part of that baby boom generation of like still committed to changing what's happening. And mm-hmm. there's a lot, so much more power in all things, right. When it's hyper-local, yeah. um, which I also think is really interesting. And I feel like I walk this really crazy extremes of a life of having been in really big global international companies and knowing that local is actually more effective and knowing the benefits on both sides. And it's, mm-hmm. um, I don't know, it's like being a, a weird translator or ambassador of like, how do we just steal all the good parts? <laughs> like, <get rid laughs> the rest. Yeah. Yeah. Very true. I, it'll be a good case study too. I mean, I'm sure mm-hmm. that the, like in the cities where those are, do they, mm-hmm. you know, invite more, do more people move there? Is there more success there or, you know, the company, you know, there's so many data points that you could probably get from that like 20 years from now. Yeah. And, and the, the, um, my minors in the urban anthropology space mm-hmm. of that community building and what causes it, where does it come from? And right. all the things I've read show that when you have the more locally owned small businesses you have, it increases all mm-hmm. those things you mentioned. It increases the sense of community feeling. It increases the uh, tourism dollars or like dollars from out of area that come into that location, how many dollars stay in that location. Um, all the data points prove that there's a higher quality of life because of that. And you mm-hmm. can even see it on the individual block level, which is crazy. Wow. Yeah. That's awesome. Uh, I'm curious how the safety mm-hmm. factor comes in because um, she's from Philadelphia and there's a lot of great things in the local economy happening in Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. And it, um, it definitely is a neighborhood to neighborhood situation, as you can imagine, mm-hmm. in a big city. But I'm curious with the increase in crime that's happening right now in mm-hmm. major cities, like how that's impacting it or not. Um, right. But typically, when you have a street of brick and mortar businesses that are locally owned, you don't have the same level of crime because mm-hmm. they're there and right. they're involved in the community and most people aren't brazen enough to um, shit in their own backyard. <laughs> so, yeah, that's very true. <laughs> um, <laughs> some people do, unfortunately, but so I'm, I'm curious how that layer of it kind of factors in. Mm-hmm. But now that I know well, that awesome. I have a I'm friend who wants to, to nerd on that, then um, yeah, I'm going to start <laughs> <I> definitely do. <laughs> that's awesome. Uh, you know, when you go to the Think Happy Thoughts, Hempy Thoughts website, you list all of these programs and companies. Are they all yours? Is my first question. Um, they are all things that I've had a role in. Um, whether it's um, several of them I started myself or with co-founders. Um, and then some I just advise for, some I'm on the board of. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, all of them in some form or fashion I've have my input. <laughs> you know, people get overwhelmed managing one business. Mm-hmm. How do you keep your head on straight 
contributing to, running, or supporting all of these businesses? Uh, I don't. <laughs> I take I take a lot of C- cannabis and CBD. <laughs> you know, I um, I don't have much of a social life. Um, I've been trying hard with the work life balance more recently, but it's mm-hmm. still challenging. Um, but then I also have a lot of support with uh, my partners and and mm-hmm. um, colleagues and whatnot. With whether it's within the industry or within the companies that that I'm I'm operating, and you know they are tremendous supports in, in all areas. Um, you know, the, I've tried to keep a lot of them kind of at least within the same framework. Um, and it's been challenging. It was re- very challenging for me early on to pick a lane, uh, mm-hmm. because with hemp, it's like, Oh, okay. There's fiber, there's seed, there's, there's, uh, cannabinoids. And I was really more interested in the fiber and the grain side until I got Lyme disease. And I, just that allowed me to just say, nope, I'm focusing on cannabinoids because it just saved my life. Um, so, um, but even with that, it's like super expansive and, um, you know, we, we do have the manufacturing side. So we manufacture for our brands. We also manufacture for other brands. And so that makes it a little bit easier because Mm -hmm. we kind of, um, you know, in that form it's consolidated in a sense. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it's definitely challenging. I've learned a ton I've you know, I've mm-hmm. been all the way from making a website to making a product to, you know, yeah. marketing it. I'm not very good at marketing it. That's definitely my biggest weakness because I just am not, I don't think in that way. Um, and it's a lot of work to market stuff. I mean, it is like, you got to be so persistent and not sensitive to like, Oh, well that didn't get a reach, you know, like oh, yeah. maybe I'm just going to quit, you know, it's like, well, that doesn't help. Yeah. Um, so that's definitely my weakest point, but, um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's not been easy. Um, I will say that. Well, I'm glad that you brought up the Lyme disease because that was also my list to talk to you about. Um, what I just want to hear the whole origin story of how you found out you had it, what that process has been like for you. And you mentioned how it saved your life, but how did cannabinoids make such a difference for you? Yeah. So I, um, I actually got it in 2013 when I was on my Fulbright, um, up in Banff national park. For those who say that Lyme is only in the Northeast, it is not, it is all over Canada. It is all the way down the Appalachian trail, um, all over the east side of the Appalachians, getting into the west side of the Appalachian Mountains. It's in all 50 states um, in some form. And so absolutely, if you ever see a bullseye rash on your on your arm or you see a tick on your arm, take the tick, put it in a freezer. You can test a tick for Lyme a lot easier than you, than you can test the human body. Um, but I, unfortunately, because I didn't know that it was in Banff or in Canada, I, and I didn't really even know what it was at the time I'd mm-hmm. heard of it, but I saw the rash in my arm and I was like, Oh, it's just eczema. I've gotten that like exact same looking rash, almost identical spot. I just mm-hmm. put some cream on it call it a day. Totally forgot about it. You know, and eventually it went away. Um, then I just slowly started getting these weird health issues that kept popping mm-hmm. up. You know, first I had a horrible, um, arthritis in my knee. I thought I had torn something playing soccer. I went to the doctor. They're like, no, you just have like a lot of arthritis. I'm like, oh, okay. Well, that's 
I guess it's from playing soccer my whole life, you know, whatever. Um, and then just more weird things started happening. I, I got a sensitivity to smells. I had sudden really bad allergies. I had sensitivity to light, to uh, sound. Um, started having like weight loss, muscle fatigue. My body was in general very fatigued. Um, the final like two things that really set me off of like, what is wrong with me? Mm-hmm. Um, I couldn't blame it on anything else, you know, <laughs> uh, was one of which I started suddenly misspelling there, there and there and where and where and whether and whether and I've never mixed those up. It was like, okay, this is really bizarre. Mm-hmm. And coupled with that, I started getting really bad headaches, which I'd never really had. But then the thing that really like made me think it was Lyme was that I was going on a hike and I was really out of breath. And, um, I had remembered my mom talking with her friend several months back about her husband and how he had, uh, they couldn't figure out what was wrong with them. And he was having a really hard time breathing. He went to the hospital and they ended up finding out that he had Lyme disease. He's okay now. Um, but I, that clicked in my mind and I was like, Oh my God. So I raced home and I got online and literally every single one of my symptoms was on that site. And then the last one was a, a bullseye rash that looked like ringworm. And I had remembered my friend who was a nurse when I had the rash, she looked at it and she was like, Oh my God, do you have ringworm? Like my dog has ringworm. Did you get that from him? And I was like, no, it's just eczema. It's fine. You know, she's like, it looks like ringworm. You should go get looked. (laughs) I never did. Stupid. Although honestly, they probably wouldn't have even thought it was Lyme Mm -hmm. because it's just not something that doctors think about. So I ended up self-diagnosing. I tried to find a doctor. I didn't have a primary care physician at the time. Every doctor I called was like, oh, we'll see you in three months. I'm like, no, I'm going to be dead. Like I have to see you now. I have Lyme disease. They're like, no, you don't click. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I finally, my dad had this like kind of random doctor. And so I went in and saw him and I told him, I said, test me for Lyme disease. I'm pretty sure that's what I have. So he thankfully listened to me got the test. I got it back. It still was like false positives, false negatives. Mm -hmm. You don't really know. It was like, because I had all the symptoms, because I had three of the five positives, he was like, I'm putting you on antibiotics, but it was already two years out. So Mm -hmm. with Lyme disease, if you don't catch it within a six, within a um, 60 day period, it will infiltrate your central nervous system and then you have it forever. Mm -hmm. Um, And Unfortunately, I was well past the six, the 60 days. Um, so I went on the antibiotics, um, afterwards he was like, well, um, that's really all I can tell you. Like, there's no other, nothing else you can do. We don't recommend staying on antibiotics for a long period of time. Um, you know, good luck. It's basically what I got. Um, and then I went to several other doctors, some far more helpful than others, um, you know, got different tests on for like rheumatoid arthritis and things like that, all negative. And, um, I just kind of started a friend of mine gave me some CBD at the time when I was already in the hemp industry. And so I was like, all right, yeah, I'll try that. Um, and it worked pretty quickly. Um, not for everything, but like I felt a change in my energy levels. I could walk a little bit easier. I could, I wasn't so depressed. Um, and so I was like, all right, well this worked. So then that's when I started 
to try different products. And then I realized this issue in the industry of at the time, which was just a quality control issue, um, which is when I created a Navi market, which is the retail side of, of my business. And then that's what really just propelled me into that sector. Cause then it was like, okay, I'm taking these for myself. I'm going to be fooling around because there's not just CBD, there's CBG and CBDA and CBC and THC and all these cannabinoids. And so I was like narrowing down what worked well for me. And I just coincidentally, one of the um, advising, one of the groups that I was advising for still am Green Man Gardens there, they had a um, pharmacist on their team and he was actually specialized in Lyme disease formulations. So I talked with him a lot. So yeah, so random, you know, hadn't, I hadn't even told anybody that I had Lyme disease and I randomly just spit that out to them. And they were like, mm-hmm. well, you know, if I specialize in that, I'm like, what? I didn't know that. <laughs> but so he really like helped me, you know, walk through some of the deficiencies that you have. And, um, and then our chief science officer within our formulations, RMOP innovates, he's a 50 years plus in pharmaceuticals. So he also is helping with different um, development on, on the vitamins and mineral side. And, you know, from that, we, we created the brand overcome, which is a, um, a brand that initially started for helping overcome life's greatest challenges. Um, now we've started to, um, position it in the recovery, like performance recovery, um, space as well. So we've got where wellness meets performance Mm -hmm. and, um, you know, really for like athletes who, you know, like me, long ago, I guess I, you know, should still say that I'm an athlete working back <laughs> to it, you know, it's hard, um, but, um, you know, those products really help with like exercise induced inflammation and those kinds of things. And they can help both on, you know, the Lyme disease, autoimmune, you know, people, people with Lyme disease, they have all kinds of weird problems, um, arthritis, um, depression, fatigue. It's a lot of, it's called the great, uh, imitator. Yeah. Uh, because it imitates different diseases like RA and MS and um, chronic fatigue syndrome and, uh, you know, all of these different um, diseases that actually are also linked to endocannabinoid deficiencies. Mm-hmm. So um, I have a theory that Lyme, the Lyme bacteria actually eats all of the endocannabinoids in your body. And that's oh. what creates those imbalances in the body because your endocannabinoid system is responsible for relaxing, eating, mm-hmm. sleeping, protecting, and forgetting. And your body in with Lyme disease, you're always in flight or fight mode. You're, mm-hmm. you're not producing enough amino acids. You're not producing your conditional amino acids, which hemp hearts coming back full circle have <laughs> like six of the seven amino, uh, mm-hmm. conditional amino acids. So those things have been a lifesaver for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and then cannabinoids counter a lot of the issues that, that, occur when you have Lyme disease. It's an antioxidant. Lyme creates oxidation. It's an anti-inflammatory. Lyme creates inflammation. Mm-hmm. So um, that's a theory. It's probably going to take a really long time to prove because similar to cannabis, Lyme disease is not studied very much. Well, yeah. cannabis is studied a lot. It's just not accepted and kind of the same with Lyme disease. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's been a, it's been a tough road with it. And, you know, a, Unfortunately, it's becoming more prevalent in the United States and other nations. And, you know, hopefully with that, the medical world will take it more seriously. But um, there's not been a ton of progress on that front. Yeah, we'll see what happens. I have a couple of friends who are uh, have it and are trying to figure out what management of it looks like. Mm -hmm. Because 
I'm sure as you've experienced as well, like they'll go through periods of like everything feels great and then it doesn't. Yep. And it, you know, it's, it's frustrating because it can wreck all of anyone who's a productive, maybe type A type person. Mm-hmm. Nothing's more frustrated than feeling fatigue. Yeah. Because you're like, like, no, I'm not. I a person need to do this. <laughs> yes, I'm not a person that's tired. I'm not a person that lays around. I'm not a person that needs, you know, this much recovery time. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's the frustration's almost worse than the managing yeah. the actual symptoms sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's it's a really interesting space. And then I don't know if have you gone down the black hole of the origin of Lyme? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It's um, pretty crazy. As a conspiracy theorist, I you know I believe it. <laughs> well, it, and it's like you know it's it's called Lyme because for people listening because it comes from Lyme, Connecticut. Mm-hmm. And the theory that it came from the research laboratory on Long Island isn't so crazy when you look yeah. at the research that people did to share that story. And mm-hmm. it also tells me a little bit why people haven't been researching it. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, I, I totally agree. I, there's only like one piece of data. And again, you don't really even know if this is real. But that like apparently, you know, some skeleton was found with Lyme disease that dates back to like 1400 years ago or, you know, there's I'm kind of making up those numbers, but there was something like that that came out. And it's like my boyfriend who doesn't really believe in conspiracy theories to that extent, he's like, no, like, look at this data point. They found it in a skeleton. And I'm like, well, how do you know that's real? Yeah, I don't know. This story seems a lot more real. (laughs) Well, it was fourteen hundred years ago, or whatever. You know, it's Mm -hmm. like, why isn't it everywhere? Why isn't it more prevalent? You know, if it's been growing at this rate. Um, Mm -hmm. So I, yeah, I I believe the yeah, you know, the fabrication much more. It was what the late sixties or late seventies when it started to show. Yeah, started to really blossom. Um, Now, some people look to it actually being used as a um that they say that it was actually created in germany during world war ii and then was like brought over and more research was done in a lab or there's a couple different it's like a, like a bio perspectives in the story yeah like a bio weapon basically chemical warfare yeah biochemical mm-hmm. warfare um so i mean that, it makes total sense back then they were doing all kinds of stuff to try and figure out i mean look at like mk ultra and, uh, yeah. you know, that, that whole mind, you know, they do a lot of things for war. <laughs> well, especially people who we have decided as a global community were off their rocker. Like there yep. were no, there were no rules of what you could or couldn't mm-hmm. do to win. So, yeah. um, it, it really shifts what, uh, what we, the research and the science that we have today for better or worse. Mm-hmm. But I do think it's really interesting. I, I also think it's really interesting how just so... I'm glad that inflammatory diseases are getting so much more attention today because mm-hmm. I don't know anyone that doesn't have one, if not multiple. Yeah. Well, and most of them are anthropogenic, you know, it's because mm-hmm. of the food we eat. Yes. Yeah. And the food that our food eats. <laughs> yeah. Like there's, there's no way to be, have a clean enough lifestyle where you're not going to have any um, inflammatory issues because it's in water and food and air and, like every product that we touch, like it just, I don't know how we can escape it. So we have to know how to manage it at this point. Mm -hmm. And uh, I don't know if, if, if everyone's taking it seriously enough. Yeah. 
And I, yeah, I would definitely agree. Some people do and, you know, others it's, it's also just expensive, you know, Mm -hmm. to to buy organic all the time. And, you know, it's like, oh, okay, well, I can, I can buy conventional now and in 30 years from now have, you know, potentially have cancer and have to pay for that. But, you know, it's okay. That'll be later. (laughs) Yes. Versus like, oh, okay, I've got to pay the extra dollar to get, you know, these organic blueberries. God, do I have an extra dollar? Because then it's a dollar on dollar on dollar. And like Mm -hmm. for everything in my basket, suddenly I'm paying $30 more for for good food. And, Mm -hmm. you know, and then it is organic, even still good. It's been pretty um, corporatized over the last 10 years or so, which is pretty depressing. which it, you know, is a total other story and <laughs> on its own. <laughs> That'll have to be episode three. We do together. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> it's true. Yep. It's just, it's, 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 um, I go back and forth between being really overwhelmed with wanting there to be kind of community government level organizations that do the testing and do the standards for us because I do not have time to test everything. I do not have time right. or the knowledge to vet everything. I really want to be able to rely on an on a group that will do that for us so I can focus on all the other shit that I have to focus on. <laughs> yeah. And it's so hard right now because you're like, do we need the FDA? Yeah, of course we do. Do we trust them all the time? Ah, it's like a 70% thing <laughs> where I'm like, maybe on those things over here, we gotta talk more. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's it's I'm like, that's so out of integrity. Like I want to have a hundred percent faith that people who are going to take care of us are. And I think that's kind of what everyone's frustrated on. Like Mm -hmm. just everybody like, yeah. You know, in the, in the hemp industry, um, as it's come to market, a lot of, you know, the, because the FDA is not making any movements on CBD, all these states have had to develop their own regulations for mm-hmm. it. Um, and a lot of the states ha- are requiring like QR codes on, on your packaging. And then that leads to a lab and um, not in every state, but in some states, they're like, you have to have pesticides reporting. You have to have all of these mm-hmm. different reportings. And it's like, Okay, I understand that. Um, sadly, most people don't know how to read a pesticide report. And yeah. like, you know, there's um, pesticide drift all the time. Um, yeah. And so just because you have this tiny amount in it, it's like, okay, well, is that good or bad? You know, it, it's usually it's fine. Um, yeah. But at the same level, well, why don't my blueberries have that? Yeah. You know, why doesn't my spinach have that? Why doesn't my my cereal have that? Because there's a lot of crap and all that stuff that Mm -hmm. probably is like, ooh, if you look at it, you know, that would make you say, oh, okay, maybe I do want these organic blueberries instead of these conventional. Um, My uh, actually my economics professor in graduate school, he had an interesting experiment that he wanted done, which was to go into a grocery store. And instead of like it saying organic uh, the conventional says contains pesticides and see what people buy, you know, will they buy, will they spend the extra dollar because they are like, Oh, it contains pesticides. I don't want that. (laughs) It's like just that change in social thought and behavior can, you know, maybe make someone spend that extra dollar. Well, and that's the, the dark side, right. Of marketing, literally every there is a marketeer behind every word we see. Oh, Natural. Yeah. That that means nothing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> nothing. Like nothing. Like it doesn't mean anything. And 
you know, just like you can use numbers to have any conversation you want. Like, mm-hmm. I love the example, like, was it like economics one-on-one? You're like, just flip the chart 90 degrees. Yeah. <laughs> That's all you got to do. Yeah. Now it looks better. Okay. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> it's the same thing with the vocabulary. Um, you know, there's, yeah, I agree with you. It would just be nice just to align and have consistency between what it means to what all these words actually mean, because we're mm-hmm. not, we are certainly not using the same definition for most of them from yeah. the agricultural side to the consumer side and to mm-hmm. the marketer side and everything in between. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's causing, like, we don't need to create unnecessary confusion, but that's right. one of the secrets to being like, don't look over here. Yeah. Well, and, it, you know, we're putting the responsibility on the companies that are trying to do good. Yes. You know, it's the fact that you get a, a package and it's like uh, contains or like no hormones, no MSG, no artificial flavors. It's like, well, good. I don't want any of that in my product, you know, yeah. but like you're not forcing the companies that have them in there to say contains all of this stuff and like bold mm-hmm. and you know lettering on the front instead they're doing whatever they want and they're getting substance subsidized to do whatever they want yeah so there's no like shift in that responsibility to the companies that are actually trying to do something good mm-hmm. and you know that's a huge problem in our agricultural economics i mean yeah I, I, not only would that help the marketplace, but it'll help the soils. And if we can help the soils, we can nearly solve the climate climate crisis. I mean, that's yes. really what it boils down to. It is our one of our largest carbon sinks besides the oceans. Yes. And we're destroying the oceans. So we can't really do a lot to save them, but we can do something to save the soils and that will then save the oceans. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we're not incentivizing that. No. Yeah. If it's, how do we save soil and how do we just stop cutting down the, the Amazon? Please. Yeah. I'm like, can the UN just declare it a UNESCO right. site that people cannot touch? Yeah. Because like, unfortunately, the leadership in Brazil doesn't really care right now. Yeah. And Indonesia, I mean, same thing. Yeah. It's mm-hmm. um, either for palm oil or for cows. Um, yeah. And maybe they should look at, you know, international narcotic trade that they created these international rules. And now every nation is like, well, we can't, we can't change our law because we would be out of the scope of international law. And they use that as an excuse all the time. It's like, oh, okay, great. UN, declare this a law. Then every nation has to abide by it. Perfect. (laughs) Problem solved. Yes. Good. We, I think we just solved the global global crisis here. <laughs> yeah. This is what powerful ladies do. And I really don't know why they they haven't called us yet to really put together the think tank. I think I'll just start putting the think tank together and we'll start pitching yeah. ideas out because it'll be way more effective. Love it. Um, I was recently at, I'm, I'm part of the Casa Orange County um, fundraising committee for the big gala they do. It's, it's a, a foster youth organization that actually really makes a difference, which... Um, is required for me to contribute to something because I'm so over not just greenwashing, but positivity washing, all sorts of things. Mm-hmm. And we were there and it's a room of like 25 women. And the fact that in three weeks time, we've pulled out like all these million dollars of donations. I'm like, why is no one calling this? Group? Fantastic. Like, yeah. It like, it didn't take crazy effort. And, and that's to me what I think is always the most shocking 
it doesn't take a lot of effort to actually change the thing. Usually we Mm -hmm. already have the answer. We already have a methodology. We are like someone already has the plan. We just need someone to be brave enough to say we need to do it. And then we need someone to be like, this actually matters. Like Mm -hmm. it's, it's so, if we want to find the resources, we find them. Like we are so good as a human population of rallying behind things. I mean, what was it like? Mm -hmm. And innovating. Yeah. Or like we, we found 80, I think $800 million to rebuild Notre Dame when it burned down. Like, okay. Like that's a lot that took like 72 hours. So (laughs) what else, like who else wants to contribute to like actually changing something? Right. Right. Um, but it, it does, despite being overwhelmed with how many things we have to fix and, and the fact that we all have a bigger to-do list than I would have thought growing up. I thought we were solving things and checking them off lists instead of adding to them. Um, it does give me peace knowing that powerful ladies like you are out there in your corner of the world being like, we've got this, like we can fix things. Um, so it's just nice to figure out ways to connect all of us who can keep helping each Mm -hmm. other. Cause like I said about the local economies, I believe more in powerful ladies than anyone else who has a microphone. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Women rule the world. We just gotta seize it and take it. Yeah. (laughs) So that leads me to ask, you know, what does powerful ladies mean to you? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I mean, I think a lot of, of what we've discussed, I think the, um, I think that we, as women, are obviously in a very unique position, even more so recently than ever, you know, kind of having a lot of our own rights stripped from us. Mm-hmm. Um, but coming forward and coming forward in unison um, is so essential for us as a, as a, a group to really take what is ours, um, you know, and but do it in, in a way that, you know, women do. I mean, we, we have a finesse that men do not. Um, and I think we just need to, we don't always realize it or we don't always feel that we can. Mm -hmm. Um, but feeling and knowing that you can, because you can is really that first step to, to be able to push you over that line. Mm -hmm. Uh, because men are, um, I mean, I work almost every person within the companies that I work are all men. And yeah. you know what, at the end of the day, they're all looking at me I'm like, <laughs> Oh, what, what do you want to do? I don't know. What do you want to do? Uh, uh, Annie, what do we do? <laughs> you know, it's like, so, you know, they, they, when they're all together, that's really what it is. It's like, you know, they're all rub stroking each other when really it's like, all right, guys, get out of the way. Let's just do this. Yeah. Um, you have to do but, real work now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Having that confidence, um, I think is key in mm-hmm. order to, to move, that forward and, and really make a change. Mm-hmm. You know, working, I, I've also spent a lot of my career working in a room full of men and it's, it's highlighted the lack of you know, female leaders in spaces and also highlighted how many opportunities there are for that. You know, how have women along the way inspired you, supported you and, and kind of helped you along your path and have there actually been any, or have they been, more of like, oh, I read about someone and they were inspiring versus having real interaction with them? Uh, there have been less than I would like. 
Um, I mean, things like this, I've, I've been on two, you know, this is my second kind of podcast that was like a female, like, mm-hmm. Hey, you're an awesome female. I'm an awesome female. Let's be awesome yeah. females together. <laughs> um, and you know, in the industry, but early on people were like, Oh, cannabis is going to be the first male or female led industry. And it's like, no, it's not. Um, and there, but within my network, all of the women that are in it, we all support each other tremendously. We all stand by each other. We help each other. Um, and that has really helped motivate me and drive me forward um, is both seeing them being in a, in a position of power and pushing you know, that charge forward, but then also them supporting me to do the same. And that support system is so important. I mean, the, the unfortunate aspect of women is we often have the tendency to be catty and to like kind of get in a click and then you kind of mm. shove somebody else out because of it. And so I've always tried to like be inclusive and to not have those experiences because it only hinders the process. Mm-hmm. And I think that if, if as, as a group, we can put that to the side um, and be, you know, more genuine and more upfront, I will say that the one thing about men, they like, they get angry, they say it out loud, they move mm-hmm. on. Um, and that's a really good way to go about doing business because you can keep going um, and you don't let those interferences occur. And I, I would say as, as a women, we, that's something that we could definitely work on um, in order to get us, you know, over that line and be able to really, you know, break through the, the ceiling. When you aren't uh, out changing the world through hemp and you're not running these businesses and you're not uh, just taking care of yourself and your health, what are you doing to fill up your cup and to have fun? Um, more recently, playing with my nieces and nephews. So that's been fun. That fills up my cup fully every single time I even see them, let alone, you know, get to hang out with them. Um, and then, you know, I, I really like to travel. Um, my boyfriend and I, pre-COVID, actually, thank God we did this. But we were both working remotely. And it was like, let's just hit the road and live in different mm-hmm. cities and um, it was so fortunate because COVID did hit and we weren't like stuck in a lease. Um, and so we did that for about two, a year and a half. And that was amazing because we get mm-hmm. to see different places. I just, I love that adventure aspect. Um, but, um, you know, more often than not, I don't really get to do a, a ton outside of work, but I have fun working. So it's like, you know, if I'm going to read, I'm going to read for purpose. Um, if I'm going to watch a show or a whatever, I'm going to read, I'm going to do that with intention because I yeah. want to like expand my horizons or my intellect or, you know, learn something about whatever, you know, about what I'm passionate about. Um, so alike. It's, it's yeah. a little cool. <laughs> <laughs> and then, you know, when I'm at the beach, I actually love to go pick up plastic. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> kind of just like weird, like, you know, my, my business partner always made fun of me because we'd go to the, you know, like, oh, well, let's like, we're in California. Let's go to the beach real quick mm-hmm. before we head off to the airport. And I'm like, okay. And he'll like go and, you know, just walk down and he'll just, I'll just be in like a corner picking up little microplastics. <laughs> like, Did you see all these? He's like, oh my God, you are such a nerd, but thank you. <laughs> I find comfort in knowing that there are other people who, when they describe fun are also a little masochistic. Like what, what is fun to you? And you're like, um, doing things with attention and moving mountains and, you know, it's not easy. Like if it was easy, I think you and I would be bored and be like, this is dumb. Why are we doing this? Oh yeah. Um, It's it's just so fascinating. Um, so 
we ask everyone on the podcast where they put themselves in the powerful lady scale. If zero is average everyday human and 10 is the most powerful lady you can imagine, (laughs) where would you put yourself today and where would you put yourself on average? Um, Today, maybe like a two. Um, And on average, I don't know. Does that mean like, oh, on on my average every day? Gotcha. Mm -hmm. Um, Probably also like a two. I don't know. Maybe maybe a four for today. I'll just pump myself up a little bit. <laughs> um, and yeah, probably like a two. I mean, the hemp industry is so small. I don't have a very large reach. Um, so I'd like to be, you know, like a six or a seven, but it's yeah. hard to get your voice out there. And I don't think you can really be like, you know, Michelle Obama, unless you got the the reach of Michelle Obama <laughs> or Oprah or something, you know. Mm-hmm. We just need to get you a PR team. I'm already like, yeah, can we do this? <laughs> yeah that'd be helpful. <laughs> I think I think secretly my favorite thing to do in the world is to prove people wrong for the best reasons. Not so I'm right, but just to be like, no, look, it is possible. Look, it's easier than you think. Right. So everything you've been saying that you're like wishing for or struggling with, I'm like, hmm, make a note of that. How do we solve that problem? <laughs> <laughs> and I awesome. I love it. Problem solver. Yeah, but you, you know, you are too, but it's, it's a matter of you and I know how many big problems there are. So Mm -hmm. all these like small things, it's like, oh yeah, like that we can take care of. Let's handle that (laughs) now because we got bigger things to do. And yeah, it's just, uh, I tell people to get paid doing what they do anyway. And that's what I do, even if no one's asking. So perfect. Mm -hmm. Love it. Um, which leads me to what we've also been asking everyone this year, which is this community is full of women with connections and knowledge and capabilities. Uh, so what do you need and what can we put out to the group that you would love to have fixed or solved or have an answer to? Um, well, because I am a businesswoman, I would say, you know, got to get those sales. (laughs) Um, uh, yeah, I mean, we've, we've got a couple different, um, places where you can check out, uh, CBD or different products. Um, not just CBD, it's cannabinoids in general, vitamins, minerals, um, overcome everyday.com. Uh, you can use overcome 30 as a coupon for 30% off. Um, especially if you're, you know, your friends out there that have Lyme disease, highly recommend Mm -hmm. giving it a try. Um, we've also got hempmellow.com and, um, anavimarket.com, A-N-A-V-I-I market. You can actually find both Hemp Mellow and Overcome on that website as well. Um, getting the word out about hemp, so important. Um, you know, sharing friendsofhemp.org. It's a nonprofit that I started several years ago that's working hard to do, um, uh, seed trial research right now. Um, so great for the, the farming side and, and seeing, you know, the different varieties that are coming in from all over the place that can help for different parts mm-hmm. of the, the industry. Um, and then, uh, you can check out thinkandbethoughts.com. Um, but yeah, in general, just, you know, spreading the good word, um, being positive out there, mm-hmm. you know, be nice to people. Um, you know, people are having a hard time all the time. So, um, you know, smile goes a long way. Mm -hmm. So sales, PR, marketing. Yeah. Just get it out there. Get it out there and start using it. Well, it has been such a pleasure to hang out with you again and to get to hang out with you one-on-one. 
again, just thank you for who you are in the world and what you're up to and know that you are not alone. And it's so appreciated the work that you're doing and how you care about what's happening in the world and how you're tackling it in the ways that you can. I so appreciate it. And I know that um, the Powerful Ladies community does too. So thank you. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate that, all those kind words, and I appreciate you as well. All the links to connect with Annie and Think Heavy Thoughts are in our show notes at thepowerfulladies.com. Please subscribe to this podcast wherever you're listening and leave us a rating and review. They're critical for our podcast visibility and getting us in front of more people like you who would love to hear this episode. Come join us on Instagram at Powerful Ladies. And if you're looking to connect directly with me, visit caraduffy.com or Kara underscore Duffy on Instagram. I'll be back next week with a brand new episode and new amazing guest. Until then, I hope you're taking on being powerful in your life. Go be awesome and up to something you love. <laughs>